Welcome, everyone. This is episode 48 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Edward Chancellor. Edward is the author of Devil Take the Hindmost, a 400-year history of financial speculation that came out in 1999. He was also the author of Crunch Time for Credit, which came out in 2005. And most recently, he's the author of The Price of Time, the real story of interest. Edward, thanks for coming on. Um, Peace be with you, Brandon. So this book, uh, The Price of Time, this is one of my favorite recent books. I have to say that I took quite a long time to read this book. I I really cherished every page. Uh, This is quite rare for a, a history book. I... I thought that your your judgment about what to include on every page and in every paragraph was important. So I found myself taking a lot of time thinking why why did he include this argument, this study? Why did he exclude these events, these studies? Uh, I thought it was a very very important work, and I I, I want to say I want to quote from the uh, front cover. Jim Grant, who's been on on this podcast before, he says, a master of his a masterpiece of history, analysis, and properly understated outrage. I just want to say that I differ from Jim Grant here because I'm not sure that it's understated outrage. Uh, I practically feel like there's a rage against the machine soundtrack playing in the background. And I think you actually tip your hand a bit at the end when you uh when you quote uh, Michelle Hollaback, uh, there's a there's a darkness here. Um, I would say that it's more than understated outrage by the end. Is that a reasonable interpretation? Um, possibly. <laughs> um, see, the, the book is an investigation into the nature of interest, and it was inspired. Uh, by the fact that we've been living through an era of extraordinary low interest rates, the lowest interest rates in five millennia of history. And as I progressed with the book, I came to the conclusion, as I'm laying laying out the argument, that these ultra-low interest rates were causing rather profound problems along a number of different dimensions that we'll probably discuss in you know, late later. And I think the, if you will, the outrage or frustration I felt that perhaps um, can be sort of read between the lines is a, that we have a, a, policy, a policy-making class uh, what you might what you might call a, a clerisy that engages in grand experiments across a number of different fields, but here we're talking about monetary experiments, without properly considering the unintended consequences of their actions. And when people have presented to them some of those unintended consequences, 
their reaction has always been dismissive uh, and to, to, to ridicule the criticism and 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 I and I and and they have continued to they continued to persist for a long time and going down what I believe was the wrong road. So so yes, there is it, it there is a bit of of, of outrage. I, I don't in a way I'm hope I mean I would hope that someone could read the book and learn quite a lot from it, even frankly if they didn't agree with some of the analysis so it's not solely a polemic i don't see it as a polemic i see it as something that's trying to elucidate a, a rather complex subject so the first 80 or 90 pages are the deep history of interest um and then we quite quickly jump to the to the modern era. Uh, there are some some very entertaining chapters in those first eighty pages. There's some overlap there with your previous book, Devil Takes the Hindmost. There's a excellent chapter on uh, John Law. Could you could you give us uh, some of your some of your background on John Law. He seems to be like the first extremely modern character in financial history. Um, so I, let, I, let me give you the background on where there's an overlap and where there isn't an overlap with my previous work. When I wrote Devil Take the Highmost, it was in the 1990s. And it, it, that was the time when behavioral finance uh, was on the ascendant. And we tended to look at uh, speculative manias through the prism of sort of, of, sort of um, through, through the prism of, of, of human error, <laughs> systemic human error, um, and and that's a tradition that goes back to you know, Charles Mackay's extraordinarily popular delusions and the madness of crowds, which is the first account of the great speculative bubbles written in the eighteen forties. Um, now, missing from that story that's the behavioral story is the monetary story and really i didn't include anything of that in the earlier book and nor actually did i write about john law in the earlier book now what's interesting about john law is that he, he he's a, a scottish um a genius of early late 17th early set uh, late 17th, early 18th century uh, character who starts out life as a, a gambler, a, a murderer. Uh, he he tours, he's forced to flee uh, England after being charged with murder and found guilty. He um, obviously a man of great charm because he works his way around Europe, uh, through the courts of Europe, and at the same time, accumulating a great gambling fortune, ends up in France just before the death of Louis XIV in 1715. And while he's gambling away, he's also a, 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 an economic visionary. And his vision is very close to the modern monetarist view, which is that an economy will thrive 
providing there is enough money in circulation. And what law does is he goes to the ruler of France after the death of Louis Quatorze, the regent, and says, let me found a central bank. Let me abolish gold. I will bring down the cost of interest. I will make debt affordable and I will bring prosperity to France. And for a brief while, Law, Law who founded the central bank, abolished gold, replaced it with a paper currency and increased the money supply, roughly doubling the money supply. Consequences of this was a brief uh, period of extraordinary prosperity in France, accompanied by uh, tremendous asset price inflation, both in land and in particular in the value of the company that Law also owned and, and controlled called the Mississippi Company, which was an enormous endeavor incorporating um, a lot of France's trading companies, other, other aspects, and eventually it also took over the entire French national debt. And in a very short period of time, uh, the Mississippi Company's share price increased uh, 20-fold. So it's a little bit like, I'm, it, one can't really compare it to any other company because it was the largest, most extensive business the world has ever seen. But in terms of market performance, it was a bit like a sort of SPAC of 2020 vintage <laughs> going through the roof. Um, and then Law's system began to collapse and it, it started to collapse as um, speculators uh, cashed out their profits and as inflation worked its way into the system and as France's currency started to fall relative to sterling. And that left Law in a difficult position. He had to choose between either uh, a la carrying on printing money uh, in order to keep the bubble afloat, but that risked stronger, higher inflation, or he could deflate and, um, if you will, sort of save the currency, but sacrifice the, com the, um, the, the, the company and, and, the, and the share price and his own fortune. And I think really, the, the, when I wrote this, what was comic is that you know, Law's failure, it, it's the grandest economic experiment prior to the Russian Revolution. And Law's failure, uh, one might have thought, was a cautionary tale. But modern central bankers and, and monetary economists are, are entranced to, to law. And they, and if you read uh, accounts by sort of conventional, journal, uh, conventional economists uh, um, and, and, and central bankers on law system, as he called it, they will say, this is the foundation of modern central banking. And, you know, when one looks at it, you say, well, if that's the foundation of modern central banking, then we have trouble in store. And, um, and that's, I think, is sort of more or less uh, where we are today. So the, the, just as Law's uh, system of controlling, of, of pushing down interest rates, inflating asset prices, and expanding the money supply ended in failure, admittedly very quickly. So this recent ex experience we've had of, of ultra-low interest rates, quantitative easing, accompanied by 
a host of asset price bubbles, what we call the everything bubble, now seems to have run its course. Yes, one thing that was very entertaining about that chapter is, uh, as you mentioned, the problems came when people tried to cash in their gains and they did things like buy fancy horse carriages and buy, uh, buy vineyard estates and uh, buy some nice Paris townhouses. Uh, in, what, in, what, what, Brandon, what do they do nowadays? They buy themselves fancy yachts, uh, high price contemporary art and, and book themselves on tourist flights into outer space. Exactly. Nothing really, nothing really changes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one notion that I've always been very intrigued by uh, is a notion by Robert Schiller, and he actually presented it in the same year uh, your book came out, Devil Take the Hindmost. He wrote a book called Irrational Exuberance in 1999, and uh, he floats this concept called the moral anchor of a bubble. And he uses the term moral in, a, in an interesting way. What he's referring to is the idea that for a bubble to continue, it has to be the case that the speculators involved do not seek to cash in their gains for real things, right? So laws bubble or any financial bubble, it, it can continue. But for it to continue, there has to be, in a, in a sense, a moral agreement among the speculators not to cash in their paper gains for real things, because as soon as they do, they will realize that the claims on wealth are not what they seem to be. Sure, and and but and, and that's you know the 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 bubble is at some level a, a pyramid scheme or or chain letter or Ponzi scheme, call it what you will, um, and providing there are more entrants and exits from the game, uh, the game can continue. But that actually is not really what interests me any longer. Um, what I'm interested in, as I say, is the monetary underpinnings of the bubble. And what we, what you find, not, you know, that there are, there are an enormous number of bubbles out there. You know, when I worked for this investment firm, GMO, you know, we actually crunched the numbers on sort of 10,000 years of data and identified you know, hundreds of bubbles across different asset classes. And some bubbles are just, you know, esoteric bubbles, you know, um, that, that, that sort of rise and fall in, in a way a bit like what you're describing as sort of under the sort of Ponzi, Ponzi, uh, Ponzi scheme type bubbles. But actually the great bubbles appear to have a monetary dimension to them. And um, the one way of seeing this is that, and uh, if you remember in the chapter on, on John Law, I cite his biographer, James Buchan. And Buchan uh, writes that the speculators seek to compress all the future into the current day and to reap the future, the rewards of the future before actually the future arrives. They, 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 they really, you know, technically we say that they're, they're operating with the wrong discount rate. And that, in other words, too, too low a discount rate. And that discount rate might, you know, 
it obviously should also incorporate a, a risk factor that their view might be wrong. Now, so the question, why is the discount rate wrong? And I, I'm arguing that discount rate is wrong of the spec cases to some extent, because the monetary conditions have lowered society's discount rate to an artificially low level, which then engenders speculation. And if that's the case, then you would expect that the, that the great bubbles would come to an end, not as Schiller says, when they run out of new entrants. That's in a way obvious, uh, but because the monetary conditions, the underlying monetary conditions are changing. Now let's look, you know, we have been living without doubt in the great period of bubbles in history. I mean, if you've been, you know, you've been working uh, for the last 25 years, you've been through, you know, the dot-com bubble, late 1990s, sort of the myriad uh, real estate bubbles in the early 2000s around the world. And then, uh, as I argue in my book, you know, we've gone through the, the everything bubble, um, uh, which, you know, really is, you know, uh, you know, we, we don't have time to elaborate the number of assets that have been inflated in the bubble, but, you know, uh, including, and let's not forget, you know, China's uh, property bubble, which in terms of size is probably bigger than any property bubble that has ever existed anywhere, size and valuation. But then this great bubble uh, in stocks and various other assets. And wh why do these, you know, what, what, why do these bubbles come to an end when monetary policy tightens? They say, look at, you know, look at um, the dot-com bubble. You know, the Fed was raising rates in 99, 2000. And then the, the real US real estate bubble, uh, you know, that, that started to burst uh, in really sort of late 2005, 2006, after the Fed started hiking. And that's you know started leading to problems in the in the you know among the subprime debt that sort of metastasizes problems across the world's global financial system, and then you know, more recently, uh, you know when the Fed's tried to tighten in in twenty eighteen, remember the stock market took a big dip and we had a sort of blow up of volatility uh, in in I think it was February twenty eighteen. And then, you know, more recently this year, you know, with the beginning of this year, uh, U.S. You know, stock market uh, was at the highest valuation in history on most measures, except possibly for the you know the last few months of the dot-com bubble, according to some measures such as you know the Schiller price earnings ratio, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, and you know what's happened this year is. You know the central banks have been uh, have brought their quantitative easing policies to an end, and they've only really started to raise interest rates from extraordinarily low levels, and they remain uh, highly negative policy rates in real terms. And yet, this just slightest restriction from from the monetary policymakers is enough to. You send these asset markets, these inflated asset markets, into a, you know, into a sort of down, down, downward spin. So I, I don't, you know, I have to say, I don't think, I think if we'd had these, um, these accommodating 
uh, monetary conditions in place for another year, you'd have found more people joining the party and asset prices would, would have continued levitating. But, you know, difficult to prove that you've run out of players versus, you know, we, we can only conjecture. Yes. So it's it's really a central banking story at the end of the day. Um, I do I do want to try to pinpoint why exactly this book is so good, because really you're telling a story that others have attempted to tell and you're telling it much, much better. So let's go over the part where you overlap with others who have told the story. Um, you think that the move to uh, free floating exchange rates and a fully dollar-centric, US-centric international order is important. Um, you think that the sort of long bull market in bonds and stocks that started, say, in the Volcker era was important from, from 81 onward. Um, you thought that the Greenspan era was important. And uh, particularly there, you highlight the idea that it was somewhat evident to Greenspan that the aggressive monetary policy was finding its way into asset prices fully and was not finding its way into goods and services prices, which became an ongoing theme. And Greenspan attempted to to tackle that, he had his famous irrational exuberance speech in late 96, but then decided to put it fully on the back burner. And then you uh, you credit his uh, rate cut after the LTCM blow up with sort of the last phase of the uh, dot-com bull market, the most manic phase. And then, um, and then you say that it was sort of loose policy in the aftermath of the dot-com that led to the, the housing bubble. So up to this point in the story, you're relatively consistent with a lot of other narratives that have been told. And where you where you really differ is in the uh, post-financial crisis era. Um, you think that we engaged in some hardcore monetary experimentation that was very much misguided. And then we kept sort of doubling down on this experimentation. Is this is this a fair read? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, look, you know, writing, you know, obviously you know, certain people were crit critical of, of the of of Alan Greenspan during his long tenure at the Fed. And and if you remember they criticized what um what was called the the Greenspan put the the idea that the the Federal Reserve saw it its job to uh, to underwrite asset prices and how the Fed puts appeared to coincide with a, a series of asset price bubbles because you know if you know that your downside is cut off you you'd be quite rational to start paying more for stuff so um, and Greenspan you know he. He sort of he um he as you know he as you mentioned he 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 mused about irrational exuberance uh there was a bit of a debate you know about how monetary policy makers should respond to asset price bubbles and it was a you know, do you want to 
lean, I think it's called lean into the wind or whatever, I can't remember the exact phrase, which is, do, do should the monetary policy makers curtail the bubble or should they deal, clear it up afterwards? And the conventional view uh, of, of the monetary policy making establishment is, oh, we can't identify bubbles, the costs of dealing with the bubble uh, in advance is relatively high in terms of lost economic output. Therefore, it's much better to clear up, clear up the, the mess afterwards. And then you have to think, what does you know, clearing up the mess afterwards entail? Well, actually, it entails even lower interest rates than beforehand. So if, according to my argument, and I'm not the only person in the world who's saying this, is that if monetary policy induces the um, asset price bubble and the aftermath of the asset price bubble is that you need even stronger monetary policy in other words you know the hair of the dog uh then you're going to get a sequence of asset price bubbles and you're going to drive interest rates ever lower and and frankly i mean if you if you look at um fed funds rate over the cycle over various cycles Look, you know, take the period, let's say, 91 to 2000 as you know, one cycle. And I'm saying off the top of my head that Fed funds rate was probably averaging around four and a half percent over that cycle, something like that. Um, then you take the next cycle. First of all, you know, from 2001 to 2000 and let's say 2007 or eight, I'd say the Fed funds rate is probably averaging about two and a half percent over that cycle. And then let's take the period from um, you know, 2008 through to current day, saying off the top of my head, I'm not gonna be far wrong, Fed funds rates probably sort of averaging about 50 basis points. So you, you can see it coming down very sharply. The other thing that's, but you, what you can also see, because you, as you, I allude to in the book, and you're I'm sure you're aware that the Fed uh, produces its own estimates of U.S. household net worth, which is really, uh, you know, the best measure, as far as I can see, of all the assets in an in an economy. And you see that household net worth in each of these cycles, relative to GDP, is moving to a higher and higher peak. So we're getting lower and lower interest rates, and in aggregate, larger and larger asset price bubble. So the asset price bubble associated with the US real estate boom uh, up to, you know, you know, the global, uh, to the subprime crisis was actually on the Fed funds net, household net uh, wealth data was actually a bigger bubble than the dot-com bubble. And then the everything bubble on the same measure was bigger than the, um, than the, um, than the preceding real estate bubbles. So we've had this, this great sequence of bubbles. And, in, and they, they actually look if, you look, if you actually look at the data, I mean, obviously this one has only started to come down, but the others, uh, what my old boss, Jeremy Grantham at GMO, was a, he calls them well-formed bubbles. In other words, they, they rise and fall more or less symmetrically. Um, and they, 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 they're clearly identifiable as, as bubbles, sort of, you know, um, from and and they and you can measure them as bubbles, you know, as we would have done at GMO, 
has measured them in terms of standard deviation, uh, standard deviations from the mean of, of their real trend, I mean, which is you know, a, a reasonable way of measuring a, a bubble. So you approvingly uh, cite Jim Grant that the, the Fed is both arsonist and firefighter. And it's not coincidental that the bubbles have gotten bigger and bigger because uh, part of the policy is to, uh, when you're in a period of weakness, have improvements in asset prices sort of drive consumer demand. In, to, so to some extent, the... Um, yeah, no, I mean, the technical... The technical term is, is you know, um, God, I can't remember. It, it, they, I mean, we one could talk about the wealth effect, but they talked about portfolio. I think it was the, the portfolio balance channel was actually about driving up asset prices. But they see the Fed saw it as part of their duty to, if you will, sort of manipulate spending by driving up the valuation of assets, but. You know, as I argue in the books, you know, you know, one of the consequences driving up the valuation of assets is you make some people inordinately richer, right, those who have assets and those who are older, and and you make life a lot more difficult for those who, who don't have assets. Uh, in other words, the poor and the young. Um, and then go back to this question, as you mentioned, sort of outrage. Is I think it is outrageous that central bankers have really um, had such a strong impact on the distribution of income and wealth in our economy. And it's outrageous that they have refused to take that on board and that you know, they, they, their standard position is uh, either to deny the data, which I lay out in the book, I think, quite carefully, or they say it is the job of policymakers, of politicians to deal with distributional issues. But but interest is always a question of distribution. <laughs> and and it's <laughs> you know, one of the things that, as you remember, I write about, you know, it's a fact of life that the let the the let the low less wealthy you are, the more of your wealth is kept in cash because you need sort of rainy day savings to meet unexpected contingencies. But the richer you are, the more you can, if you will, lev lever up and the less percentage of your wealth is, is in cash. So the poor suffered over the last decade um, from actually higher borrowing costs from banks and um, and and from um, and, and no reduction in credit card uh, lending, but they got no they got no interest on their cash deposits on most most of their household wealth, whereas richer people uh, tended to do very well from this sustained period of asset price uh, inflation. Now, from a reading of your book, I wouldn't try to guess your politics, uh, but it's fair to say that you have a, a deep trust in economics, in economic forces. Uh, you believe that an economy is a complex adaptive system not to be, not to be uh, 
interfered with lightly. Um, you throughout the book uh, mention Hayek and Schumpeter. It's interesting. Hayek is um, still accorded a lot of respect, but sort of quickly paints you on the right side of the political spectrum. And Schumpeter has been sort of soft canceled by the economics profession. I, I appreciate that you're you're reviving him because I've always uh, been a fan. Actually, can you so tell me how he's, because I was unaware of that. Oh, why Schumpeter had been uh, soft canceled? Yeah. It, it, it does actually have to do with his um, sort of social and political views, if you will. Uh, also, um, he was, um, yeah, he wasn't like the the gentlemanly figure of Hayek, who's just sort of pronouncing uh, things and speeches and and books. He was um, he was a loud character, and that contributed, I think, to uh, him being sort of soft canceled. But but I, I mean, so as far I mean, what I see, you know, Schumpeter's notion of of the entrepreneur as a key figure in um, the capitalist process is, is sort of lauded, as far as I know, on, you know, in Silicon Valley. Um, and Schumpeter's idea of, of creative destruction is also, you often hear it you know, mentioned as we get a new wave of technologies and you know, Google or Amazon knock out X number of you know, traditional businesses. Um, and so I, I think that I, what I would say is that Schumpeter is probably selectively endorsed. Um, I think, um, you know, I, I think, I think with, with Hayek, you, you know, he, he didn't, you know, his view, as you say, is of the economy being a sort of a very complex uh, information system in which no individual uh, has is is capable of comprehending, of gathering the information necessary to make a correct decision, and uh, the way then that the correct decision or the optimal decision is arrived by is to allow the market, which is an information exchange to operate and determine and to set prices um now that you know that 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 um is is not a as you know an idea that uh is going to be grasped by those who um who want to you know who, who really want to whose natural bent is to interfere with this complex system but wait one second so i you know at the end of my book i cite you know I, one of the people you know contemporaries i lean on uh are, are is is bill white the uh, former chief economist of the bank for international settlements yeah and early on you cite his uh his work uh ultra easy monetary policy and the law of unintended consequences from 2000 12. Yes, and, and Brandon, that was sort of, I was thinking along the same lines when that paper came out. And um, I wrote it, I was writing a column in the FT at the time, and I wrote up that 
column. And, and I was at, um, as I say, I was at GMO, uh, the investment firm in Boston, working the asset allocation team. And I started doing, at the time, you know, doing an internal project on interest rates and so forth. So that was sort of the time of genesis. Anyhow, I end the book, uh, this book, on um, citing uh, Hayek's um, uh, Nobel Prize winning speech, uh, which is marvelously called The Pretense of Knowledge. So imagine, you know, you have been given the grandest economic prize there is, and all you do is say, you know, I'm operating in a profession that pretends to knowledge. And Hayek writes here, the recognition of the insuperable limits to knowledge ought indeed to teach the student of society a lesson of humility, which should guard him against becoming an accomplice in man's fatal striving to control society, a striving which makes him not only a tyrant over his fellows, but which may well make him the destroyer of a civilization which no brain has designed, but which has grown from the free efforts of millions of individuals. And in a footnote to that, um, to that comment, I cite what, what Bill White, formerly of the BIS, wrote me in an email. He says, central bankers make a profound epistemological error by failing to treat the economy as a complex adaptive systems, system. All their other errors are derivative. Isn't that quite nice? That's great. Either, either you get that, and in a way this book is sort of, is in complete agreement with Bill White's uh, position, or you don't get it. Either you see that we've got a complex adaptive system that we can't, as individuals wholly grasp, or you see a system that is sort of naturally some or other in a sort of position of equilibrium and stasis that you can tweak the levers and that you can't really do very much harm. And the harm, if you're doing anything at all, will show through some epiphenomenon such as, uh, well, through the narrow uh, epiphenomenon of, of either a rising or a falling uh, uh, consumer price index, and anything else that happens is of no concern to you. It, it, it's, you know, for me, you, you know, I'm now thinking that it's almost as if there are two types of human beings: those who are hardwired to to comprehend the notion of complexity, and those who cannot see it. And it's almost as if we live on, on, on parallel universes. Yeah, when I say that Schumpeter has been sort of soft canceled, I guess what I mean is that I think that the names Hayek or Schumpeter have with 100% probability not been mentioned in the Eccles building in the last couple of years. So both are deeply unfashionable and yeah, but can I so so you mentioned you know in two thousand and five, I wrote a, what was actually a specialist report rather than a, a you know trade book uh, on the credit 
uh, boom that was going on in Britain and the US and, and elsewhere, but I my main focus on US and Britain. And in that, um, in that, in that uh, report or book, uh, I do have a bit about Hayek, but I also have actually quite a lot about Hyman Minsky. Now, um, I became quite entranced with Hyman Minsky at the time I, and wrote a long, um, not only wrote about it in the report, but I wrote a long uh, essay on Minsky um, that was published in uh, early 2007, which was called Ponzi Nation. And as you know, Minsky was um, was completely ignored by the economics profession. And incidentally, Minsky, uh, as you may know, was a student of Schumpeter at Harvard's. And Minsky wasn't given a wasn't even given a place at an Ivy League uh, college. He had to go off and work at the um, university. Is it called the University of George Washington in St. Louis? I mean, a perfectly good university, but not you know, not your your you know, not not, not your Ivy League college. And um, I I remember asking a you know an old Wall Street economist at the time, you know, what, why did no one talk about Minsky? And he said, oh, he's difficult to model. And then as I was reading, one of the things I was reading about when I was reading, I read quite a lot of Minsky and he's actually a difficult guy to read. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't write, he doesn't write like Adam Smith, let's say. And um, at one stage, you know, and here's outrage, Minsky says, he says, there's a little cry from Minsky, no one up there understands economics. And then the crap, the, you know, the cry, you know, the, I wrote this piece, I say, in, in 2000, early 2007, that next, over the course of the next, you know, two years, you know, all hell breaks loose. And who suddenly comes back into fashion but Hyman Minsky? Hyman Minsky is on, you know, he's on, suddenly on Ben Bernanke's lips, even. The man who was difficult to fashion, the man who said that, that you know, if you will, that the balance sheets of the financial system well, the all-important factor, the man who had a completely financial view of the capitalist system uh, and of the importance that, uh, that the balance, that people could, uh, not only that the balance sheet balanced, but also that people could meet their debt service payments and so on and so forth. And suddenly, so, so you know, we live in a world in which uh, people ignore, uh, you know, in a way, the, the, the relevant economists or the re relevant way of thinking until you know until it's too late and suddenly they then come back into fashion and you know mince you know everyone talked about you know the Le lehman bus being a minsky moment do you remember that term the yes, minsky moment. but what you know when i read about minsky in 2007 i could hardly find anyone right you know paul mccully at pimco had written a bit about him i even actually had to cite people who i told pin <laughs> Minsky about like Jim Grant and my old boss Jeremy Grantham in order to be able to have someone to say well actually some people are interested in Minsky but there was always no in interest in Minsky then and and there is you know now Hayek you know the the the, the modern policy consensus is um is if you you know they call it neo-Keynesian but it's sort of it's a largely Keynesian model with a bit of monetarism thrown in and you know as you probably know uh Keynes and Hayek were, were, were you know, the, there was a great big bust up in the 1930s, and really uh, from a, you know, from a, in terms of dominating uh, the academic institutions, the Keynesians, you know, 
completely won that battle and and you know it became a um and 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 you know people are not particularly aware of, of the of Hayek stuff I, I remember I'm and perhaps I'm being indiscreet but after the global financial crisis we had Ken Rogoff of, of Harvard talking at the GMO client conference and I, I took him out to lunch afterwards and I said you know uh you know what what do you think of um the sort of Austrian stuff, the Hayek. So, so I, 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 I haven't really read any of that stuff. Uh, and I, then I said to him, you know, the Harvard economist must be, you know, it must be a very interesting time for you all getting together and discussing what's happening. He said, oh no, we don't really speak to each other. You know, we all have our own different specialities. So, you know, I mean, I mean, what can one say? You know, uh, modern academic economics is highly specialized, has no interest in the history of economic thought, and um, you know, doesn't comprehend the complex system, evolutionary system that Schumpeter wrote about. Um, yeah, Minsky was uh, hard to uh, digest for the economics profession. There was one fellow Brit that was writing about him early, uh, Peter Warburton. Are you? Oh, yeah, are, Peter's a friend of mine. Yeah. yeah. His book, Debt and Delusion, was quite quite a great book. And and early on, I, I believe in Debt and Delusion, there are some extended pieces of uh, about uh, stabilizing an unstable economy by Minsky. But Minsky was tough because the Minsky framework is one where there is a complicated response function between participants and policymakers. And that is that is hard to digest. The fact that that the participants are uh, constantly sort of strategizing against the the policymakers. But, but, but yeah, let's stop there, because I think this is a very important point that Minsky argues that um, that after a crisis, the policymakers come in to try to avoid a debt deflation by loosening monetary policy. And at the same time, they write regulations, financial regulations, in order to prevent a repetition of the past crisis. And then Minsky says, and I mean, tell me if you're thinking differently about it, this way I see it. Minsky then says, um, well, a financial markets are full of very smart people and they will find their way around the thicket of regulations and 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 will do new uh, stuff that's not really encompassed in the regulations and that will set the 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 scene for the next crisis and that that i think is very i mean that that analysis is sort of Im embedded um in, into this new book, when I, um, you know, I discuss um, how, um, you know, when at a time when very interest rates are very low, there's an encouragement to take uh, all sorts of undue risks, whether leveraging up or whether you have a deterioration in credit quality or whether you're taking liquidity risk or uh, often taking all those risks together, leverage, credit, and liquidity. And there is this idea, which I don't think is correct, that 
monetary policy should do one thing, which is just focus on the price level, and regulation should uh, put out all these fires, uh, potential fires, in the um, that are happening through, uh, if you will, sort of irresponsible uh, financial behaviour. But um, you know, uh, there there are never going to be enough regulators, and the regulators, frankly to be blunt, not going to be as smart or as well incentivized. Um, but most of all, they won't have the right knowledge. <laughs> they won't have the comprehensive knowledge uh, to, to, to win that game. And so what we've seen in the last uh, um, you know, recent years is an extraordinary expansion of the, of the length and breadth of financial regulation and a massive increase in the um you know, in the number of of compliance and regulatory personnel bureaucracy um and yet uh, it doesn't seem to prevent you know, what we call regulatory arbitrage of people finding their way around the 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 um regulations it's a bit you know, one i don't think i mentioned it in the book but one way i've always thought of this is um you know, after the First World War, the, the French built what's called the Maginot Line, which is sort of a, 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 a great fortification on the German border. Uh, you know, with masses of uh, of um, of uh, you know, large guns, artillerys, and in, in, you know, on a range of hills and bunkers and so on. The idea was, you know, the Germans would never be able to come uh, you know, into France as they had done in the First World War. What did the Germans do? They just Went, you know, went around the site, <laughs> and and there is, you know, and and the one person you know, uh, on the sort of, you know, who, on on the sort of establishment side, who, who I think clearly understands this, uh, well, two people. One is is as I mentioned, Claudio Borio at the Bank for International Settlements, um, and he's written you know a, a lot about this, and his papers definitely all worth reading. But also Jeremy uh, Stein who's very smart economist at, at Harvard. And, and Stein was a um, briefly a governor of the Federal Reserve after the global financial crisis. And he observed that, you know, with interest rates very low, that we were having all the sort of risk-taking activity uh, that we'd seen prior to the financial crisis. You know, the, and he in particular uh, cited, you know, the deterioration of lending standards, whether measured by uh, leverage uh, in, in among buyouts and number of leveraged loans that were being issued and the, and the deterioration credit quality as measured by these so-called payment in kind bonds and what you see in in stein's charts is you know a massive increase of risk on these measures in before the financial crisis coming down very sharply and bouncing back afterwards and stein just makes this um you know, you know very succinct uh, and, and 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 very insightful comment where he says uh, you know regulation is all very well but only monetary policy quote gets into all the cracks and really you know if you think about you know one of the uh, what I'm trying to express in this book is how interest whether people know it or not sort of gets into all, all the cracks of the economic and financial system. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, Jeremy Stein 
hasn't written a book about his experience because he was a quiet objector. I I took a course with him back in grad school and he uh, he is very polite and he would never really go out on a limb with criticism. So what, what he uh, wrote and spoke about was kind of harsh criticism of Fed policy in his language, right? In his political. Yeah, and, and bear in mind, you know, he only took one term as mm -hmm. a Fed governor and then, you know, skedaddled back to Harvard because I think he probably found it and not, you know, a conducive environment. I think that, I think it was he, he told me that, um, I think it was him who told me, at least someone told me that during the Greenspan era, you, you weren't to mention the ill consequences or the, the prevalence of asset price bubbles. I think during the Bernanke era, you sort of weren't really meant to talk about interest. You weren't to make any connection between the easy money period preceding the financial crisis and the following, um, you know, subprime bus and, and 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 global financial crisis. So you know that you can see that. I mean, if this is correct, you can see that you know the Federal Reserve is you know where where you know the establishment with its hundreds of economists, you know, employing. Am, am I right to say it employs you know up to half of the? It sounds almost too many, but you know, I'm, I think I read that they employ half the finance the monetary PhDs in the world or whatever, it, perhaps not that high. But you can see that it, 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 the danger of that type of institution is it becomes a sort of echo chamber or a hive you know, dominated by the, its queen bee. And you, know, you don't want to express uh, views that the queen bee uh, you know, doesn't um, care for. So I, I, I mean, look, you know, Stein will have his own reasons, but um, I think he... He's the economy for me. He's an economist who understands the sort of interactivity between finance and the economy. He doesn't, you, you know, um, as you're aware, you, and as I write about the trouble with, um, you know, the the sort of canonical models is that money is just a, a veil that doesn't really, that has no, and you know, that has no, no effect on the on the on the on the underlying, um, you know real economy i think that position is, is is not correct i i would agree yeah the fed it has 800 staff economists so it's it's probably true that they have half of the monetary economists that graduate and there is can i actually can i just say so one of the things was i i think i mentioned that wall street journal had a sort of survey of economists after the um, after the global financial crisis, which they asked, you know, did they did they think the Fed was responsible? And kind of there was quite a large percentage. I think a majority of economists, academic on, thought the Fed, you know, had played some role uh, uh, leading up to the global financial crisis. But the monetary economists didn't. You know, it's as if I don't know. You know, again, probably to do with you know looking at the world with a you know different spectacles. Well, they knew who was paying their salary. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. And there's there's also strong evidence that um, when 
when someone goes into the Fed, no matter what their views beforehand, they are quickly shaped by the institution. And part of it is that there's so much intellectual firepower there among those 800 staff economists that whatever the person's view, uh, they're inclined to yield intellectually. So you take Jerome Powell as someone who um, probably had free market views. There was in the history an inclination to yield, right? But um, it was remarkable to watch his transition uh, most acutely in the period that you mentioned where he does the famous Powell pivot from the sort of 2000, late 2018 tightening to the to the early yeah. but by the way i mean Alan, isn't alan greenspan an even better example where you know in his youth he's sits at the feet of ayn rand as part of her of her i think it was called the collective and he, he writes i mean slightly cracked papers of of how uh i mean i didn't necessarily disagree with the analysis but the, the slightly cracked papers about uh, you know, Fed and the gold standard and the and the nineteen twenties boom and bust, and you know, the, in and in it, the uh, inference being that you know the the you know the Fed uh, caused great deal of these problems, and then you and there you take this sort of purest of libertarian uh, uh, e economists as he purported to be at least, and then you put him in the Fed, and he then becomes. Uh, you know, he, he he really takes the the Federal Reserve down a route. Uh, we you know, as we've discussed earlier with the Fed, you know, the Fed put and 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 constant intervention. So the Fed becomes more activist, um, and 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 in the end, you know, I, I, as you know, in my final chapter, I sort of say we really sort of moved into an age of of central banker capitalism. Do you remember that Minsky has this sort of view that we live in? Different eras of capitalism, um, and you know where where one player or, or one type of institution is, is dominant, and you know clearly uh, in the last you know the last thirteen years or so, uh, you know, and I, I would argue probably the last twenty five years, um, you know, what the Fed was doing is what you know everyone wanted to know because they were the most important player. Talking about this move to central banking capitalism and keeping in mind our time limit of around 10 more minutes, uh, I wanted to sort of go to the last couple of chapters and look at March 2020. Um, as you noted, Minsky believes that stability breeds instability, and there were good examples in late 2019 and early 2020, you had uh, in early September of 2019, the, the repo crisis, which would have caused a great market disruption if the Fed hadn't acted very quickly. And then you had um, a quite incredible run up in the S&P and the NASDAQ at the end of 2019 going into uh, early 2020. And then, um, when COVID was really flaring up in, in Europe, in the United States in early March, you had uh, a quite insane level of disruption in the markets, in, in the equity markets and in the bond markets. And there was a rush yeah. 
Ash, that probably uh, wasn't going to see uh, an end. It was it was a terrifying week there, and then it led to a entirely new chapter in Fed intervention. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, it's it's in, in a way we're sort of it's a disaster, but we're sort of privileged to have lived through it. <laughs> um, you know, as I say, it 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 makes all these other you know great periods of you know extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowd seem quite sort of rational and 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 almost no note. But just I mean think of you know, we had the you know March 2000 uh we had a very rapid collapse in the stock market and um you know, very rapid um widening of, of credit spreads and you had um a you, you had a whole load of the sort of ETF complex which was uh trading out of line with its net asset values and um, and I, I argue that you know, the severity of that downturn was not the market reading, you know, accurately or even attempting to read accurately what the likely consequences of the pandemic were on you know cash flows and so forth, uh, but really um, what I call a the pre-existing condition, <laughs> uh, and the pre-existing condition being a, you know a long period of 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 risk taking leverage and inflated asset prices. What I don't mention, so I have a former colleague who uh, called Jamie Lee, who now works with Jeremy Grantham at his um, at his foundation. And Jamie's argument uh, is that the stock market crash is what induced the policymakers to uh, to go into lockdown <laughs> because Jamie thinks that the that the market crash made the policymakers think, hey. This COVID thing really is serious. Look at what's happening on Wall Street. Uh, but if um, if the, if this analysis that actually the crash was sort of, if you will, backward looking and to do with uh, fragility of the financial system, it wouldn't have taken it wouldn't have taken you know really more than a puff of wind uh, to to bring that down. And then, as you say, the after that, you know, the central bankers go into overdrive. They become complacent after a decade of printing money, of quantitative easing, of bringing interest rates down. They, they have uh, got used to the idea that, uh, that inflation is um, under control. They credit themselves with controlling inflation. They remain uh, obsessed with the idea that uh, that deflation is uh, the great risk out there, and as I argue in the book, they, uh, you know, they they that they, they massively overstate the deflation risk and don't really understand the nature of deflation, or at least they don't understand the nation the 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 difference between good and bad deflation, uh, and they, you know, they they print. I think in aggregate, the major central banks print eight trillion dollars worth of fresh money uh, uh governments run deficits of roughly the same order and you know we get 
you know, the last hurrah of the everything bubble. I think Charlie Munker says, you know, Warren Buffett's sidekick says, you know, this is the most extraordinary period in the entire history of finance. And I say, you know, Munger, you know, smart guys, he's not exaggerating. And, you know, you have you know, the SPACs, you have the cryptocurrencies that sort of, you know, you have spoof cryptocurrencies and you have spoof for spoof cryptocurrencies. You have these non-fungible tokens flying around the place of people purportedly paying millions of dollars for sort of, in effect, nothing, an image that, you know, that may or may not, a digital image that may or may not be replicated, and an air of, of complete unreality in the financial world of, as I say, you know, something almost as if we were living in in you know Alice in Wonderland or Alice through the looking glass in which the norms of society the norms of finance norms of business are all upending upended and as i point out uh, in my conclusion you know if you look at carol if you read lewis carol it's all about time being stood still or time being put into reverse or valuations being turned upside down so it's as if you know the 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 looking glass world of lewis carroll was one that that we engineered for ourselves and you know i i found that um, obviously intellectually you know, immensely interesting but you know Look, look, you know, from a perspective of, you know, what this augured for our, for our world. I mean, leaving aside, you know, the markets or leaving aside, leaving aside the um, economy, but what it augured for our civilization uh, was, you know, it was, you know, to me at the time, profoundly disturbing. Um, and I suppose, again, going back to, as we discussed earlier, the sense of outrage, you know, you know, in a way, it's the sort of outrage, perhaps, of, you know, of the Cassandra who, who can see or thinks they can see the, the direction in we're heading and which others uh, appear oblivious. Let me ask you a, a tough question. Um, is there a case that says that things have gotten so absurd that a continuation of the absurdity is in order? In other words, like I know where you would where you would be in economic matters if we were starting from scratch, but given that we're not starting from scratch and we're starting from this very strange place, is there a case for just continuing the craziness? Um no, I don't think so. You know, um, there is a there's an English nursery rhyme um, that we all used to learn as children. I don't think the Americans have it. And it goes, I knew an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. And then the next line is that she swallows a spider to catch the fly. And she goes, you know, and then and then she swallows a bird to catch the spider. 
and it carries on and then it says she's then she swallows a goat and then she swallows a horse to catch the goat and it ends she's dead of course <laughs> so the point is that each time you um you double down you might alleviate your short-term symptoms but the underlying problems did you know deteriorate and um now i know you know there is no i mean clearly we live in a world not just of of you know, to my mind wrong models wrong ways of thinking but also there seems to be a sort of widespread myopia or short-termedness in policy making you know providing and, and that might be again a sort of slightly you know, civilizational problem let's say um but you know one needs to one needs to um one needs to think of of the long run regardless of what Keynes says you know, in the in the end you know we're not all dead in the long run in the long run it'll it catches up with you which is why one needs to keep an eye on the long run um so i don't i i, I actually think you know things wouldn't have changed we would have stayed in this uh in, in, in the world that we've been in but for the return of inflation so the return of inflation changes everything uh, with the return of inflation this you know turning on the monetary spigots to deal with your problem is you know no longer an option you have to th start turning off the monetary spigots and you have to start uh you have to start um raising rates and you know that's what's been happening this year and um that really it, you know i mean one you know one gets one doesn't you know things that always appear as one thinks they're going to appear but it seems to me whether they like it or not we we've sort of reached the end game and um so you know the 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 next years will be whether we like it or not the resolution of the types of imbalances and problems that have built up uh, which i've tried to describe in the book i love it um last question what are you going to speak about at the grants conference in october Ooh, i haven't thought about that um i better get better get on to german here what um what he, what he wants me to talk about but probably yeah, i suppose you know something something about what we've been speaking about already but he may you know jim likes actionable ideas so perhaps i better be a bit more actionable maybe maybe uh you and jim on stage together that would be that would be quite interesting well thanks so much for this time i'm i'm deeply appreciative Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Rainmakers was gracious enough to be the first sponsor of this podcast. For those of you interested in playing on Rainmakers, download the DraftKings Daily Fantasy app, sign up with the promo code ADAMS, click the Rainmakers tile, and opt in to get your first card free. You will then join thousands of players who are playing for millions in prizes all football season while building the ultimate NFT fantasy franchise with Rainmakers Football. That's promo code ADAMS. Build, play, and win only at DraftKings. Contest entries dependent on type and number of NFTs held. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details.